Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports. Actually, a special edition, a Friday edition. We've been doing these the last couple of weeks because, well, there's an election going on. There's a lot of big issues going on. The world is changing by the day, and it's important that we keep you up to speed. Today, we're not going to do a monologue, although I will uh, encourage you to go to Just the News and take a look at some of the stories that were breaking on Just the News, two that you're probably going to be interested in. I was able to get a statement last night for the lawyer who represents the Delaware computer repair shop owner who brought the alleged or purported Hunter Biden laptop in uh, to the FBI. And there's a tremendous twist to this. And that is that the laptop originally uh, had been given to the FBI, offered to the FBI in July of 2019 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but the FBI turned it down. They didn't want it. They weren't interested in the Hunter Biden stuff last summer. By By the way, that was around the time that I was writing a lot of my columns for The Hill raising questions about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Burisma. You get uh, the timing. But then the FBI came back unsolicited in October, October, November timeframe, as the um, impeachment proceedings against President Trump, this is 2019, began warming up the House. All of a sudden, the FBI got interested in his laptop, and they issued a subpoena and grabbed it. What an interesting twist of events, huh? So uh, that lawyer, Brian Della Rocca, exclusively gave us a statement, a detailed timeline of everything that happened. It's definitely worth reading. Go out to justinnews.com and see that. In addition, um, we have a story breaking this afternoon that I think is very important. It is brand new evidence that I've been able to obtain from the files of Robert Mueller's investigation showing that Mueller's team had multiple pieces of evidence showing that Hillary Clinton's campaign, the effort to create the false Russia collusion narrative to stick Vladimir Putin on Trump, began in May of 2016 and, of all places, in Ukraine through the DNC. They were going to link Trump to Manafort, Manafort to Russia, and therefore claimed Trump was beholden to Russia and Putin. Very clear evidence. One of them is a document from the State Department. The other are exchanges between uh, um, former Manafort partner Rick Gates and uh, Tony Podesta, the brother of the Hillary Clinton campaign chairman. You got to read these exchanges. These are explosive new information. It shows that Robert Mueller had enough evidence to tell us, hey, Hillary Clinton was behind this dirty trick, but he left it out of his report. I actually talked to one insider inside the investigation. You're going to want to see what he says. It's uh, definitely worth reading. Check that out as well at justthenews.com. Now, we've got a special edition. This is an unusual edition, uh, but it's a very important guest. So Fred Flights, one of the country's premier CIA national security intelligence experts, most recently a chief of staff to Donald Trump's National Security Council. He's going to join us for the full show. We're going to talk about all things security, what's going on in the bureaucracy of the CIA, what documents should still come out about uh, Russia. Keep in mind, Fred Flights is one of the few people who's been briefed and knows what's inside the famous Devin Nunez referral report to the CIA about the Russia collusion intelligence community assessment. He's going to tell us what he knows firsthand from this report and why it's important that the American people finally get to see. Uh, as we know, Haspel and the CIA are dragging their feet on that, but it's going to come out eventually. I'm pretty confident. Fred Flights can tell you what's in it now. You're going to get that first from John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Now, in a few seconds, Fred's going to be here, but first, we're going to go to a commercial break where you can hear from our great sponsors, the advertisers, the people who make Just the thenews.com possible and john solomon reports please support them we love their products we love their services we deeply appreciate their support 
the people you're about to hear from, they make this all possible. Show them some love by buying their product and their services. All right, when we come back from the commercial break, Fred Flights, former chief of staff to the National Security Council, joining us live at John Solomon Reports. Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, one of the country's premier national security experts, a longtime intelligence officer, former chief of staff to the National Security Council, an all-around good guy, Fred Flights. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, John, good to be here. It is great to have you. Um, I um, was reading the other night, and I came across your most recent column that really caught my attention it's about one of the stakes in this election that probably a lot of people in everyday America aren't thinking about. But once you read your column, it, it puts you into a deep thought. And that is the issue of whether politicalization of our intelligence uh, apparatus, our national security apparatus, is on the ballot. And I thought your writing was brilliant and uh, the points that you made were brilliant. And it's a wonderful follow through from the Russia collusion uh, caper that we just all lived through that there's a bigger issue here. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what inspired you to write the column and what you're seeing as the stakes in the national security community in this election. Well, John, I was a CIA analyst for 19 years. I was at the House Intelligence Committee for right. five years, and I've done other things. So I've seen uh, this profession over, over the long term. And there was this letter by a bunch of former intelligence officers recently who right. were complaining that uh, if President Trump gets reelected, intelligence will be uh, seriously undermined and politicized. And, and they sort of perpetuate this myth that intelligence is immune to the influence of politics. But, but I know, John, from my career, that's not true. I, I saw really blatant politicization of intelligence, especially during Democratic presidents when I was at the CIA. I was retaliated against pretty pretty seriously right. by, the, by the Clinton CIA for not going along with their efforts to write things that Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright wanted to hear. And it was bad. Some of my colleagues left the country, some of my analyst colleagues, because it was impossible to write objective analysis. But it, it comes down to this. Having been in Washington so long, I know that no government agency is immune to the effects of politics. Intelligence agencies are less political, but you know they're not immune to politics. They have to compete for resources from the, from the president and from Congress. They have to compete for his attention. There are ambitious people. There's corrupt people. There's disgruntled individuals. And to assert that 
you know, we are simply too pure to be affected by the, the, the temptations of politics is nonsense. Of course it's there. Right. The challenge is to have a president who puts people in to keep these agencies honest. And the president did this with Rick Grinnell and John Radcliffe. I don't think he and his staff understood how bad a problem this is, the urgency to get people in who would promote the president's policy and keep the intelligence bureaucracy honest. We're getting there right now, but it isn't going to be done unless the president is reelected. And, and that's an important point. You're not looking for analysts who are pro-Trump. You just want them to be straightforward, honest, right? And I think that that's, you know, when you hear this debate, a lot of times say, well, President Trump just wants yes men in the intelligence community. No, he doesn't. He just wants accurate, honest intelligence that isn't leaked all the time for political purposes. Uh, describe some of the things you've seen over the last four years that tell you you see an intelligence community that's sort of uh, gone astray. Well, let's talk about the January 2017 intelligence community assessment Absolutely. that I think you're one of the nation's experts on. This assessment came out in early January. It was rushed out at the urgings of the Obama administration to look at Russian meddling in right. the 2016 election. And it found that Russia meddled in the election to help Trump win. And everyone said, aha, all 17 intelligence agencies have said the Russians try to help Trump win. That's right. But that wasn't the case. It in wasn't. fact, it was only three agencies. Right. The, the document we first heard was written by about two dozen analysts. We then heard it was only written by three analysts, all of whom were very close to John Brennan. And I, I remember saying on Lou Dobbs at the time, Lou Dobbs show on Fox Business, right after it came out, this looks very odd. There's no dissent. And, and the conclusions were unusually crisp. Uh, they seem unusually political. Something is political. There would have to be dissents. Where were they? Right. Well, we found out from Rick Grinnell later, there were dissenters. And I know this from my sources on the House Intelligence Committee. Right. But this goes to a larger problem. The intelligence community over the last few decades likes to write analysis by consensus, by committee. Right. They have a liberal bottom line that the New York Times would support. And there are, there are no alternative views. And I think that is a real problem because on a lot of these questions, there's no easy answer. We shouldn't be boiling it down to what the, the, the Kennedy School wants to hear or the New York Times wants to hear. We have to give the president a variety of analytic options. Yeah, that's the thing. A monolithic uh, intelligence analysis is a useless uh, intelligence analysis, right? Because analysis is always about making best guesses off of the uh, available data. And of course, your guesses are only as good as the incoming data. But when you start getting to this thing of monolith monolithic analysis, the president can't hear dissent, right? And I think that's one of the big questions you're read in. You obviously worked on the National Security Council. My understanding is you had an opportunity to take a look at uh, Devin Nunez's uh, referral report that uh, we've all been trying to make public for the last couple of years. There had to be dissent on the, on the uh, Russia analysis, correct? I, I was uh, briefed on this referral that Adam uh, that uh, Devin Nunes' staff did, right. and they said there were analysts who objected to the way that um, the, the intelligence community assessment was written. Apparently, there was analysis that said there was raw intelligence that said the Russians wanted Hillary Clinton to win the election, wow. but John Brennan wouldn't include it, and that was excluded over the objections of CIA analysts. Right. There was other information, weak information that did not meet CIA standards, suggesting the Russians wanted Trump to win. And according to uh, this report, uh, this uh, referral by, 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 by Nunes' staff, 
This was included at Brandon's insistence, and CIA analysts objected. Well, in my view, those analysts are whistleblowers, and they should come forward and talk about this because this is this is corruption of the intelligence process for political reasons. We shouldn't even have an intelligence community if it is going to be a vehicle for the Democrats to undermine uh, uh, Republican presidents. Yeah, it's a very big, it's a very big issue. Do you believe that the release of that report would, uh, which obviously the CIA and others have been fighting for quite some time, that's public information now, that the dissent that the CIA has in releasing this report. Do you think the public would benefit from the release of that report? There's a way to redact it so you protect sources and methods, but at least learn the underlying conclusions. Would the American public benefit from that in your estimation? It would greatly benefit, and it isn't just about these issues. There's information in it, for example, talking about how when a super political topic like this has to be addressed by the intelligence community, political appointees have to recuse themselves. It has a lot of very reasonable recommendations. And, John, there's an unclassified version. This would right. not be hard to release. It wouldn't be. Yeah, no, that's the, it's, so when it doesn't get released after two years of the president saying it should be released, other people talking about its importance, uh, what is at work? How does this, you've been in the intelligence community for a long time, how do they do the rope-a-dope like this? Who who puts their foot on it and what's their motive for putting their foot on it? Well, there there are two bottlenecks to keeping the report uh, from coming out. Attorneys in the DNI's office and Gina Haspel at the CIA, director of the CIA, who's claiming attorneys in the CIA won't let her release it. And I think that when this comes out, it will be very embarrassing to multiple intelligence agencies, and it'll be very embarrassing to John Brennan. And my belief is that these careerists are trying to wait out President Trump and never release this document. Wow. And, and uh, Gina Haspel has been ordered by the White House to bring it to the White House, and she refused because oh. she said, the CIA attorney said that she can't. John, I find that unacceptable. She works for President That's Trump. That's right. Yeah, well, maybe President Trump will have to go to the CIA and go get it. <laughs> well, my friend Lou Dobbs has said that on the air. Yeah, he has. He has. I think I was listening when it happened one time. <laughs> yeah, the president is determined to let this information out. And I think one of the more, you know, one of the more unique things about President Trump, uh, just observing as a reporter, is that he actually has a higher degree of transparency than many presidents. I, I can't think of another president that would almost immediately when the Ukraine scandal started said, you know what, I'm releasing the transcript. People are saying this is what's in there. It's not. Look at the transcript of my conversation with the world leader. He seems to, uh, to be comfortable with letting people see more of this. And what's remarkable is that the tug of war back, the, the counterbalance to this is we, we have um, agencies, the State Department, the CIA and the FBI particularly, that think transparency is an entire blank document with all black marks on it called redactions. Um, how do we beat this culture? How do we make sure that the American public has more visibility into you know what's a very powerful part of our game? We're not trying to unmask the sources and methods. We just want to understand, are they telling us the truth? Is there a way to combat this new secrecy that has uh, really fallen across the entire bureaucracy of government? Well, there's two things I think that uh, the, the Trump administration should do. There has to be a major house cleaning. I think an awful lot of senior officials need to be replaced. We have to bring in outsiders. And for a lot of the analytic offices, I think we should bring in conservative professors, and not maybe liberal professors, because we have people who've been there forever. Yeah. They write the same thing over and over again. They're really out of touch with what's going on in the world. And they're not giving the president a variety of worldviews to, to let him choose. And the second thing is, 
we have to stop saying intelligence speaks truth to power because <laughs> yeah. intelligence is not truth. Yeah. When you say that, you're saying to a president, you have to take our analysis. You must right. act on it because we're right. No, intelligence is an opinion. Right. Intelligence is not truth. It may be truthful. Right. It may have been put forward with the best of intentions. But if the president looks at an analysis and decides it's wrong, and you know analysis has often been wrong, he hasn't done anything unethical. But if you listen to the major news media, it sounds like he's, he's committed a crime. Right. If he ignores something that the CIA tells him, we have to stop that. We have to make it very clear. Intelligence advises presidents. It does not adjudicate his policy. It does not tell him what his policy should be. Yeah, no, I think that's right. People, you know, the people who know the art of intelligence realize that it's it's all about making great educated guesses, analyzing data, trying to come to the best analysis. And I assume most of our analysts do that to the best of their ability. But at the end of the day, it's still only a guess. And sometimes we get it wrong. We got it wrong one time when we bombed a place in Bosnia that was wrong. We got it wrong on, you know, 9-11, mis miscalculating the, the threat that was uh, about to occur in, in August and September of that year. We, we can get things wrong, and, and the the idea that intelligence is infallible is um, is something that I think has been burned into the American consciousness by all these great TV shows, right? The analysts in the CIA and the FBI always save the day, and they're always right, but at the end of the day, it is a guess, and this idea of fresh blood, do you think there's a will, if there is a second Trump administration, is there a will to begin to redeck these agencies, bring in fresh blood, fresh thoughts, new processes to try to make these very valuable agencies more robust and effective? We're already seeing it with John Radcliffe in the right. Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I might add, I would shut that wasteful bureaucracy down. It doesn't serve a purpose. Yeah. It is nothing but a politicized layer of bureaucracy that I don't frankly know what it does. But to tell you how bad this problem is, the CIA has not been cleaned out since CIA Director Casey joined the Reagan administration. Wow. And That's when John Brennan was there, he stacked the decks, all the senior positions of far-left liberals. And over the last four, four years, they've hired more. And not just at senior levels, I mean in the personnel section. There are liberal Brennan people hiring liberals to come into the organization. It's an enormous problem. There has to be an innovative and hard-hitting director of that place to take a hard look at what did Brennan and other liberals, and frankly, years of lack of attention to the intelligence community by, by the Bush administration, how much damage was done and what has to be done to fix it? Yeah, that's a very good question. Do you have a favorite of uh, someone that you think, uh, it seems like Gina Haspel's days are numbered just from the uh, body English that you see between the White House and the CIA. Uh, you know, she's had a storied career, obviously a, a glass ceiling smasher at the CIA, but uh, obviously she's not going to be the type of person to bring the sort of radical reform that could really make the CIA position for the, you know, the next 25 years of the 21st century. Do you have some people out on the front lines that you like as as candidates or someone that you think would bring a, a fresh approach to the intelligence community? I think former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Pete Hoekstra, uh -huh. would be a good choice. Now, I'm a little biased since I worked for him for sure. five years. Right. Uh, I'd have to give some thought to other people, but I think there are others like that who, look, we don't want to burn the place down. We don't want to fire everybody. Right. We just want to bring people in who will say to the bureaucracy, just keep, do your job, keep politics out of your work. And yeah. let's give the president options. Let's not tell him what he has to do. 
Um, let's not leak your briefings to him. Let, let's not leak sensitive NSA material because you don't like him. That's not the, you, the taxpayer pays billions of dollars yep. for these agencies. And they do that with the understanding that they, that they will not be used to, to meddle in U.S. domestic politics. Such a great point. And uh, it is our money and, and it, it gets wasted when a big leak occurs and all that hard work to get into position to intercept that information is blown away with one selfish act of a leak. It is um, often forgotten how damaging that is. I want to take you to China because I, I remember back a long time ago when I was editor of the Washington Times and you were a very eloquent voice at that time of that the consensus, the happy talk in 08, 9, 10, 11, 12, that China was going to be our friend, that they didn't pose a, a, a serious threat to us, um, uh, that that was happy talk and not merely based on what our own intelligence analysts, our own military experts were saying. The decade of 2010 to 20, let's say 2020, tell us what happened with China. How did we go from Joe Biden being, hey, China's a great place. My son's making money there, too. I was wrong about China and, you know, it does pose a threat to us. What was going on behind the scenes in the intelligence community that that the the threat assessments were being sort of stifled uh, while Happy Talk and, and China expanding its business in America was growing? Well, we call these analysts who refuse to see the threat from China panda huggers. And there were quite a few of them in the CIA and in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and at the State Department. You wouldn't believe how bad it is. Yeah. And they just they just were deferring to the foreign policy establishment. But this just wasn't the fault of the intelligence community. Multiple Republican and Democratic administrations have refused to take the threat from China seriously. They operate on the assumption that, well, we let them in the international trade system. That means not only will their, their economy transform, so will their political system. Right. The Chinese have eaten our lunch. They have a, a mercantile system to take advantage of, of the economic freedom and opportunities we gave them. And they've cracked down more over the past 10 years on their people and on freedom in, in their country. And they're building up their military, their intelligence, cyber warfare. They've become a very serious existential threat to our freedom. Wow. And we, we've seen what's happened in Hong Kong. How concerned are you that Taiwan is the next Hong Kong, that China is going to be much more assertive in its approach to Taiwan over the next, let's say, 24 months? I think there is a, 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 there's going to be an action against Taiwan someday. I don't expect it that soon. But clearly, the Chinese government is preparing for the day that they do that. Mm. And I imagine that they're, they, they certainly are more willing to move when we have a weak U.S. president. So if Biden was to win the election, I don't think this, this attack will occur, but I think it's more likely than Trump is in the Oval Office. Wow, that's a scary thought. I mean, that's always been the, the Armageddon scenario that the, the PAC, PAC fleet is always worried about is the possibility that um, that a conflict would occur over there, over Taiwan. Um, I want to take you to another part of the region. I, I'm always so fascinated because you have such a grasp of the world and we, we seldom get an expert of your your, your breadth of knowledge on here. Um, when you look at what just happened, there were some elections in Ukraine. It looks like the pro-Russian forces have made some significant gains in Ukraine in the elections. Uh, you got a weak president in Zelensky. Um, the, the approach in Ukraine has mostly been driven by the State Department for the last 10 years. As you look at Ukraine, which is such an important ally, uh, what do you see in Eastern Europe going on, and what can the Trump administration do to sort of change some of the dynamics there? Well, when I look at the election in, in Ukraine and other areas of the world, I am seeing how vulnerable it is 
through exploitation and manipulation by other powers. Yeah. And I don't just mean Russia. I mean right. China. China is heavily involved yeah. in meddling election. I've done a lot of work with South Korean groups on how China probably fixed the April 2020 South Korean national elections. And this, this included meddling with election machine electronics. I mean, wow. it, was, it, was, it was very, very serious. And, and I, I worry there's a potential of that happening in this country. But we have generally pretty good defenses against that. But in these right. countries in Eastern Europe, it isn't there. And the Russians are good. And I think when you see Russian candidates, Russian-backed candidates in these former Soviet Union countries suddenly making gains, you yeah. have to be suspicious about what really happened That's in the election. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. It's a warning sign for all of us. Um, Ukraine has sort of been an important um, place for liberal liberal Democrats. I mean, when you look at the places where they champion, uh, you know, the George Soros, the, the, um, the folks that uh, often back the Clinton Foundation, Ukraine's been very important to Democrats. And in many ways, even under Trump, the approach at the State Department has been the same. It hasn't changed course in, in the way, with the exception of the president obviously giving lethal aid to Ukraine, which President Obama and Vice President Biden weren't willing to do. But does the State Department have the right approach in Ukraine right now? When you look at the way we, we keep saying we want to bring reform there and every two years we throw out the prosecutor and we bring out a new president and the same cycle continues. How do you disrupt the cycle in Ukraine and try to create the sort of uh, uh, pro-Western beneficial reform that makes Ukrainian people happy? Their economy is terrible, right? They're always staring down Russia. Is there a way to break the cycle in Ukraine and, and make it a more robust um, economy, a robust democracy uh, in the near future? We have to stand for those things, but I don't frankly know what the State Department's position is. And I think there are too many careerists who are pushing other agendas, have been playing games with the U.S. presidential election. Yeah. I, I think that we need new leadership in, in the uh, European Bureau at the State Department to come up with a strategy that the, the National Security Council knows of and approves of. Uh, but to date, we, we've seen such nonsense with the impeachment hope, uh, a collusion hoax right. and the Hunter Biden stuff. I, I frankly don't know what the State Department's doing. Yeah. I, in fact, I think that's part of the problem with Ukraine, which is that they don't have a clear, they can't tell what the State Department's real mission is right now. Right now. I've talked to many uh, Ukrainian government officials and they clearly are concerned that um, sometimes the State Department speaks with multiple voices. They're, they're very appreciative of President Trump giving the lethal aid. And, you know, that was a momentous foreign policy decision that doesn't get a lot of attention. But um, there, there's an interesting uh, dialogue there that I think after this election is going to hopefully sort itself out. When you look out um, at the, um, the world today, and uh, what do you see over the next six months to a year as the most important, most pressing uh, national security priorities that we should have, whether it's President Trump, President Biden, what are the what's the big one or two that you really worry about the most in the next six to 12 months? Well, we have to talk about the Middle East. There have been huge gains for peace by President Trump because yeah. he threw out the diplomatic book, stopped giving the Palestinians a veto over moves towards peace. And Arab states are making peace with Israel. And this is because of the Trump administration and because President Trump got out of the fraudulent nuclear deal with Iran that we, we now know without any doubt that Iran was cheating on. Right. And it worries me. I think that's going to continue if Trump's reelected. It worries me that Biden will rejoin this terrible deal. All this will collapse. Uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda uh, and will we, uh, come back from the ashes and, and we, will, we will have real uh, international security problems once again coming from Iraq and from Syria and other areas where ISIS has a presence, 
I think uh, Biden will start multilateral negotiations with Iran, which gives China and Russia a veto over anything that we do. We will be appeasing Iran once again. I'm really worried about that. Same thing with China. The tough policies of President Trump towards China, the tariffs, they're all going to end if Biden wins. China will start walking all over us once again, as will Russia. I think there's real potential for um, Trump to build on his achievements, international achievement, if he's reelected. But I, I think they will simply go down the drain very quickly if we have another uh, a president who is all ready to appease their enemies, like Joe Biden, if he enters the White House. And it really is a fascinating, uh, different approach. I mean, the foreign policy approaches are so clear. Uh, you know, there hasn't been a lot of discussion in the debates. There hasn't been a really good debate over foreign policy, sadly, uh, during this election. But there really are two very different approaches to the world. Trump's approach is very clear, and it, I think, mirrors in many ways, you know, a, a 21st century revision of the Trump, of the Reagan doctrine of peace through strength. And then, well, you know, the, the, we, we can study what Barack Obama did, and we sort of know what the foreign policy of uh, Biden is, because Biden basically ran foreign policy for Obama. He was, Obama wasn't that interested in foreign policy. I think he once summarized his foreign policy document, um, uh, doctrine as just don't do something stupid. He might have used a more colorful word. Um, but um, the, when, do our leaders, um, or the leaders overseas, how are they looking to handicap this race? I mean, you got five days left. What's at stake if you're in the Middle East, if you're in Russia, if you're in Eastern Europe and our NATO allies? Um, do they do our, our allies across the world see the distinction? And what do you think they're evaluating in these election results? Our allies in the Middle East want Trump to win. There's no doubt about that. Israel wants it. The Arab states want him to win. Uh, he has been a big plus for security in their region. They know he stood up to Iran. Our enemies want Trump to lose, including Russia. No matter what the intelligence community says, the Russians do not want Trump in for another term. He's been hard to deal with. He doesn't go along with them. He's put really tough sanctions right. on, on Russia. They know that will end. But you know what's interesting? I think our European allies want Trump to lose too. They would prefer a weak and malleable United States that defers to Europe and the UN. They don't like a U.S. that acts on its own. They are liberal internationalists, let's say globalists. They know Trump is not. They don't like being lectured by him. He's been their worst nightmare because yeah. they're moving towards world government. Obviously, that's not what Donald Trump wants. Yeah, he's also been costly to them. They, they're chipping in a lot more money to NATO than they ever had to do before, which uh, a lot of people that's forget. Right. Yeah, tremendous, uh, tremendous change and uh, measurable change in policy. Uh, well, Fred, I want to thank you so much. First, for the great column you wrote this week. I thought it was one of the most prescient things I've seen in a long time. And uh, also for thank all you. your service to the country. We'd love to have you back after the election and help you have us help handicap what's just went on and uh, what the next big moves are in, in foreign policy. That's great. Well, thanks, John. Good to be on. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you, Fred. Okay, folks, we're going to come right back and wrap this up in a few seconds right after this commercial break. <laughs> Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. 
Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, that wraps up our podcast. I hope that you uh, enjoyed the conversation we just had with Fred Flight, somebody who knows a lot about the intelligence community, somebody who worked in it, one of the premier CIA analysts in his day, someone who battled with the Clinton administration, the Bush administrations, someone who uh, has deep insights into what's going on inside the CIA and the rest of the intelligence apparatus. Uh, those sort of guests are the type of people we like to bring on the show. We hope they're educative, informative, bring to light new issues for you to think about as you go into the election, as you go into the end of this year. We're very grateful for Fred's time today. Now, here's a special word. We are going to do, yes, I can't believe it. I'm inflicting myself upon you a little bit more this week. We're going to do a special weekend edition. We've got Pastor Daryl Scott here. Uh, he has been a very prominent African-American evangelical voice for President Trump. And he's going to tell us what's been going on in the ground game in the African-American community. Should we believe these polls that say 12, 15, 20, 25% of African-Americans might vote for Donald Trump after all the things he's done in prison reform and just judicial reform? I don't know, but Daryl Scott's been on the front lines. He does know, and we're going to bring him here. We're going to challenge him on these numbers uh, over the weekend. So if you're bored, you're stuck inside with bad weather, or it's too cold outside to go out and go for a walk, turn on the podcast over the weekend, a very special edition, an unusual weekend edition from John Solomon Reports. We hope you enjoy it. And again, if you love our show, if you love what we're doing at justthenews.com, please go and support these great sponsors who make it possible. All right, we're going to have a weekend edition. We'll be back on Monday, the pre-election final uh, podcast before Election Day 2020. We'll have a surprise guest for you. Be prepared. Buckle up. Election Day is only a few moments away. All right, that's it. We're wrapping it up. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.